Welcome to the Social Propertypreneur Podcast. And here is your host, social media queen, property investor, and entrepreneur, Laura Muse. Morning, everybody. Laura Muse here. And this morning, I have um, someone who has helped us incredibly on our journey. Um, he is a multiple business owner. He is a property investor. He's a mentor and a trainer. Um, and he's also a ski instructor. Um, it is the incredible Dixie Walker. Hi, everybody. You've got the gloves on. <laughs> Steve will love that. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Laura, but I could not resist it. After what's been going on on our Steve WhatsApp group uh, over the last 24 hours, I just could not. So, Steve, good to see you, mate. <laughs> so, for people who are listening to the podcast, um, we're showing some gloves. It's a ski story. We'll fill you in another day, but um, yeah. <laughs> Um, Dixie, obviously you've been a massive influence in our property journey. You've been a mentor of ours um, over the last, God, it's nearly two years now. Um, Do you mind telling us a little bit, but obviously we we do know you, we go on your ski trip. We're fortunate to be able to go there. Um, Can you tell people who are listening who might not know you, might not have met you, how you got into property? Because you do some, you do a lot of different things in property and different strategies could you tell them how you got into it and the different things that you do okay so uh go back to well i was i was born where i was born and brought up there was that we didn't own the house we rented the house and i'd always wanted to own my own house and uh, i think part of the reason being that i wanted to kind of knock it around and change it and if it all fell down then it was down to me so so <laughs> When Rose and I first got together, the first thing that we did was go and buy a house. Um, but I, because of because of one or two earlier mentors that I had, didn't realise that they were mentors at the time. But uh, one of them said that it was probably a good idea to buy another house because the house that you live in, it doesn't really matter how much it's worth, does it? Because as the market goes up, the difference between the value of your house and the value of the house that you want to move to, they both go up at the same time. So it's the increment. So if your house doubles in value, it doesn't really do you any good in terms of the the the, the, the housing market that you're going to be living in because the house that you want to buy is probably doubled. Okay. However, if you buy a second house, which you don't live in, and that doubles in value, then that's a good thing, isn't it? Because you can actually take that equity out. That's the whole principle of property investing. So I kind of always wanted to do some of that. And um, so after badgering Rose for about three or four years, um, I've, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've, I've, we, I finally went and bought a house, uh, 37, no, uh, 47 Royd Street in Accrington. And I bought it at auction. This was our first, I've done a lot of reading and background stuff. There was no training. I mean, we're talking late 80s, early 90s. There was no training out there available. There weren't, you know, people who knew what they were talking. Well, there was training, but not from anybody who knew what they were doing. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you know, get old time. And so I went to auction to buy this house uh, in Royd Street. Uh, it was a London auction, and Accrington, if anybody who doesn't know, is in the northwest of England and is the home of the famous football league club the first one to go 
Bellia Accrington Stanley. <laughs> so I, I knew what the property was going to look like. I knew what kind of area it was. I knew what the rental demand was. All I needed now was a property. So I went to the auction and I was so excited, you wouldn't believe it. Uh, but when I got there, it turned out that the, I was running a traditional business at the time. It turns out that the, the lot had been moved to the end. It's in the catalogue, it was at the beginning. And when I got there, it was at the end. So it was about a four hour wait. And I thought, I just can't wait that long because I'll be too excited. So I went to the yeah, lesson number one, went to the auctioneer and said, I'd like to buy that lot number so-and-so. And he said, okay, how much are you gonna bid? So I told him 8,000 quid. What I didn't realize at the time was that the auctioneer has the right to bid up to my bid, 8,000 quid, right? So I went back to the office and I was watching it on telex or something ridiculous. Um, bear in mind, Facebook hadn't been invented. Uh, uh, the, the internet still worked on a wind-up version. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was pretty slow. But I was watching it trickle up. So uh, first it was grand, then it was 1,500, then it was 2,000, then it was 2,500, then it was 3,000. I'm sitting there going, no, this is no good. This is no good. It's, it's going too quickly. It's going to be way out of my range. And then it gradually, when it got to about five or six, it, it slowed down, so it was going up in 200 pound increments. And sure enough, it, I'm going, no, 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 it's, oh, it looks like I'm not going to be able to buy it. I should have stayed at the auction. I'm having all this conversation going through my head. And, and finally, it stops. Hey, grand, oh, yes, wonderful, brilliant, yeah. Oh, I bought it. And I'm jumping around the office. Right? So, but then I had to tell Rose that I bought it. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to have heard Rose's version of that story. <laughs> yeah, Please don't ask on the next uh, ski trip. So, uh, anyway, we did some research, Rose did some research, and we, we went up there and we found this house and we met one estate agent at the house. And she said, Oh, well, you, uh, you've overpaid for this. If I, you know, you, you shouldn't have paid any more than £1,500 for it, but I can probably get you two grand for it if you want to get your money back. So we said no. So we went to see another guy and he was much more helpful. So we, um, we, we engaged him and we got something like 40, 45 pounds a week for the next eight years with about 70% uh, occupancy and then sold it for 13 and a half grand. So in the end, it wasn't a bad deal. However, what I haven't mentioned is that I did keep in touch with somebody who was at the auction. Yeah. And he was quite an experienced um auction goer so when when you know what you're doing you can tell whether the auctioneer is taking bids off the lampshade as it's known <laughs> they go oh yes one over there oh yes and another over there and another over and they're, 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 they're not doing anything wrong it's all you know because i bid and he said if i've been in a room i could have got it for 1750 that is 1750 well, the fact that you can buy a house you bought a house for that price is incredible i mean there's just no way you can do that now, especially, well, unless you're in Outer Hebrides, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. So that kind of started it, really. Um, what do you want to know now? Um, how it led you and what you got, what kind of, because you've got different strategies in your portfolio, haven't you? Yeah. So the, 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 the next, so that was a kind of, um, that was an introduction, but the first serious, what you might call a serious investment, was 21 Lumley Drive. We, um, like I said, we were running a, um, 
a traditional business at the time, but it was a positive cash flow business. So we had money in the account most of the time that we probably didn't need for another quarter or something when the back bill came up. Like that. Um, and I was doing some more research. Um, we were quite pleased with the way that Royd Street was going on. We'd had that two, three, four years and then decided that, or maybe we should stick out so in another pool of water, as it were. And we uh, came across a guy up in um, in Newcastle area, well, Durham, really, and uh, went to visit, had a look around, spent lots of time online. Uh, right move was just about coming in, whereas, and we're now talking mid-90s, uh, so you had to be on site. Actually, you should be on site anyway to get a kind of a feel for the place, shouldn't you? But so I came across this saucer uh, and he offered me 21 Lumley Drive and he said, okay, so here, you, you buy this house for 20 grand, um, you give me, I, I do the refurb, 1,500 quid, you give me 1,500 quid for doing it, and sorry, 25 grand we pay, pay for it, uh, you give me 1,500 quid for finding it, you give me 1,500 quid for refurbing it, I'll put a tenant in there, look after it for you, and you will remortgage it with Bradford and Bingley at the time, um, and you'll get all your money back. And I thought, so he's talking about BRR, but it wasn't called BRR then, was it? <laughs> uh, and I thought, well, it's a bit like service accommodation. I thought that was holiday lets, but <laughs> same thing. So, um, and I thought, well, that's not going to happen. And that's the thing about BRR. It's a bit like the afterlife, you know, until you've experienced it, you're never going to believe it. Um, but, and I thought, well, if we, we'd only spent sort of 29,000 pounds. I mean, we say only, don't we? But if you saw 29,000 pounds in five pound notes on your kitchen table, you'd realise how much money that actually is. But I knew we would be able to get some kind of a mortgage. And I thought, worst, worst case scenario, we're going to leave maybe five, six, seven thousand pounds in the deal. And the company where we borrowed the money from, our company, could afford that. So worst case scenario, that's what was going to happen. Anyway, it got renewed. It got uh, remortgaged. Guy came in at thirty nine thousand, so we took seventy five percent of thirty nine thousand. It finished up. We had we we got about three hundred and sixty pounds in cash back. So uh, that paid for a holiday, and we thought, well, we we'll do that again. <laughs> so what led you but, on to do things? Because you do quite a, you do big conversions and new you do new builds as well. Don't yeah, you? yeah, more recently because what what happened after. It seems to me that we should get some more of these things. Yeah. But I was running a traditional business and I was I was working in the business. I was there on a daily basis and it, it didn't work without me. And I never kind of thought about it's not really a business if it doesn't work when I'm not there. I didn't think about that at the time. But then we started thinking about that. Um, and I started putting some systems in 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 place uh and then because of a change in european law we were closed down overnight that's that's another hour story which we could do on another uh, another day but suffice to say the traditional business that we had closed almost overnight which left it it didn't leave us with no money we, you know we weren't we weren't on our uppers but our income had gone from quite high to nothing and so i went to the pub and after about three months, Rose came and got me and said, it's time to go back to work. And I said, 
what am I gonna do? She said, why don't you have a word with that Tony bloke and see if you can get some more houses? So I said, oh, okay. So I rang Tony and said, Tony, can you get me some more of those houses? I think we had four, three or four by then, um, over about a five year period, not very exciting. But uh, so I said, if we want some of those houses, can you, how many can you get? And he said, well, I, could, I, could, I won't do the accent. I, would get, I could get you one about every six weeks, something like that. I said, okay, how about you find them, I buy them, you refurbish them, I sell them when we split the profit, how many can you get then? And he said, well, about two a week. And that's what we did. So that, so kind of, that is really deal packaging, really. Oh, is that what they call it? <laughs> <laughs> exactly so well the thing is though that i didn't have anybody to buy the houses yeah but i figured that worst case scenario i might have to buy them and <laughs> at the time i mean mortgages to you know if you had a pulse you could get a mortgage <laughs> actually i know a bloke who got more about 800 mortgages for people who didn't have a pulse that <laughs> was that was very illegal, obviously, and we didn't get involved in it. But he did ring me and say, do you want to buy something? I said, no. So anyway, so uh, the, the deal packaging business went on like that for, well, in the first 18 months, we did 80-something of them. Oh, wow. And um, I, I honestly don't know how many we've packaged all together, but it's in the hundreds, 600, 700, something like that. Wow. <laughs> And you still package uh, more, or do you not bother now? You just do bigger commercial stuff. Well, I wouldn't say I don't bother, but I don't because uh, I'm involved in in other stuff. So I package uh, I package bigger bigger stuff. I still get phone calls from people, um, and because it is somebody might once have said your network is your net worth, and and and, and that's what I did. I started off with just with me and Tony. Uh, and then we we had a we wanted to go in different directions, so we had a it was a separation, not not a bad one, but you know it happens. Uh, so that that's when I started trawling around finding other people who were going to get houses for me because I can't spend you can't spend all your time rushing up to Durham or Liverpool or whatever and be on the phone talking to your investors. Yeah, so and regards- seen a- yeah. I was just going to say in regards to deal packaging. What you implemented there, so the the skills you were using then, do you still advise people to use them today? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we, like I said, I did spend a long time on patch. I mean, I could because I was basically unemployed. Yeah. And I couldn't get a job because nobody would give me a job, really. <laughs> I mean, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> unemployable. But so I, I, would, I would go and visit Tony who would take me round, but there were quite a few people at the time who would meet you at the airport, drive you round, show you the houses that they wanted you to see and then drop you back at the airport. But I used to hire a car at the airport and meet Tony somewhere. And then we would go and see the houses that he wanted to show me. And then I'd jump back in my hire car and go and look at the houses that I wanted to see. <laughs> that way I, 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 I got to know certain areas around Durham in the villages and in Newcastle as well. Um, in fact, Lumley Drive, 21 Lumley Drive, was in a place called Concept. Yeah. Concept in Durham. Ormophilius Fog. Aye. And 
That's why I don't do the accent usually. <laughs> I, won't, I won't attempt my accent. <laughs> uh, but uh, so I, I did know. So it got to the stage where Tony would ring me and say, I've got, I've got one here. And, and I would kind of know. And it, Google Maps didn't really exist. Um, but, you know, there are, there are like every, every town where you've got sort of X, X, it's X mining villages is the classic thing, isn't it? So that every town where you could be one street away from the arse end of it, you know, where you don't definitely don't want to be uh, yeah. investing. And, and I knew enough about the area so that we weren't investing there. And, um, and then I took that principle on and as Rightmove became more popular and as uh, Google Maps got better, you know, I can, I can, now, I can now find a new uh, uh, gold mine area in an hour yeah. on a laptop. But the principles stay the same. So what led you from deal packaging into the bigger commercial deals you're doing now? Well, to be honest with you, I, I, people did ask me to deal with commercial stuff. Um, but I thought commercial was completely different. But when, um, when, when our business was closed, I discovered that commercial property was the same. It's just, it's just property. It's just cans of beans, isn't it? It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. I mean... The only difference between Mr. Waitrose selling beans and me selling a house or you selling a house or anybody setting up like a deal packaging business, for example, which is not, which is not easy, but it is straightforward. Um, yeah, the, the difference is the number of noughts on the end. And that's what frightens people off. Well, I thought that commercial property was much more complicated than residential. Whereas in fact, uh, caveat, once you know what you're doing, it's much more straightforward. Yeah. And it's just another can of beans. But I, I, was, I got really busy with my deal packaging business, as you might imagine. And until, um, I don't know, probably, so in about 10 years we did, so from 2004, well, 2005 really, to about 2014, we did six or seven or 800 deals. And then it occurred to me that maybe, um, maybe I should look at commercial because somebody asked me to advise on commercial. It was a friend of mine. And I said to him, I don't really know, but let's have a look. But then I realized that when we had the traditional business, we had bought the building that we were in, which was an office. But actually, it's a commercial building. And all it was was a very big house. And actually, that, that saved us in a way when we got closed down because it had doubled in value while, while, we, were, while we were in there. So, uh, and, uh, and, and as, you, as you kind of suggested, I got a bit bored. <laughs> um, and the market changed. Um, you know, markets change. Yeah. Um, new legislation came in and I thought, well, do I want to get involved in all of that or should I just do something else? So, and we, we still do a, a, a bit of single debt, still acquire them, still collecting them. Um, but my main focus now is on, um, on new build. Cool. So how did you get into and training and mentoring from that? What stage did this kind of fall in? Cause you've done a lot of that, haven't you, over the years? Yeah, well, I popped into a place in Peterborough once to meet somebody. 
and uh, <laughs> and uh, and it sort of went from there. I just uh, I it's it's networking, isn't it? I hate networking. I absolutely hate networking. I'm surprised no. that Dixie. I thought you'd be great. I love networking. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't say I wasn't good at it. <laughs> I hate it. Yeah. You know, I, I can hold a room. I can be the centre of attraction. I don't mind that bit. But actually, going. I remember going to a pin meeting in Cambridge once, and you know those conversations that you have with yourself when Percy pops out, and you got a little voice on on one, this shoulder, another voice on this shoulder, and they're going. You, 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 if you do that, you're going to die. And this one goes, oh, for God's sake, you know, you've done it loads of times. So I'm sitting in my car and I made myself, it started at 7.30, I made myself deliberately late. I could have been there at quarter past seven, but I wasn't. I, I got there at 7.28. And now I'm saying, this voice is saying, oh, you can't go in now because it starts at 7.30. And, and it will take you at least two minutes to get to there. And that you don't want to be going in late, do you? Because everybody will look at you. And this one's going, say, just go in now. Um, and this happens to me all the time when I go to networking meetings. I absolutely abhor them. I sit in the corner, I don't talk to anybody, and then, but do you know what happens? People come over. I'm not suggesting you, anybody should do this as a strategy, but it works for me. I'll sit in a corner or one on my own like this. And people will come over, and usually the host or you know one of the regulars, and say, Oh, what's your name? What are you doing here? <laughs> My immediate reaction to that is, what's it to you? <laughs> but anyway, you, um, the, 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 the more people... I'm, I'm struggling not to be too negative about networking meetings, but, but the, the problem with that, let's put it this way, the problem with networking meetings is that people are there for networking but they don't really know what networking is for. You have to have other people in your, in your circle, in your business circle. You have to have people who can help you. You have to have people that, sometimes people that are in front of you on, on, your, on your adventure. I don't like the word journey. I prefer to think of adventure. And you also have to have people that are not quite as far along as you. And some of the people who are much, much further along in one aspect, for instance, they can find property. They're not so good with mortgages. They're not so good with finance. They're not so good with getting JV finance. Yeah, you've raised a lot of a lot of money in JV finance. When I first started thinking about that, I I, I thought that asking other people for money, you know, was a sign of weakness. Because if I'm so good at this property stuff, why do I need their money? Well, the answer that's this voice. Right? Well, this voice says, but it's bleeding obvious, isn't it? Because if you don't get more money, you're going to stop doing the deals. You're going to run out of money. So you need somebody else's money. Is it better to have half a house or no house at all? But it just occurred to me that it might be a good idea. I had done JVs, but I'd only done JVs with people that I was already in business with. For example, when we bought the building that I, I then rented as the office, I, I had that, um, actually it wasn't 50. Anyway, I had, I had a split. I think it was like 75, 25 or 70, 30. A, a pal of mine put some money in and for the deposit, uh, part of the deposit. Um, uh, an interesting story about commercial there. I assumed that we'd be able to borrow 75% of the, of the value, but actually we could only borrow 65% of the value, which left us about £30,000 short. Mm-hmm. So it's that kind of thing that you, you need people uh, 
further along on their journey so that you can ask questions like that and not trip up yeah. over silly things like that. Sorry, what was the question? Uh, I can't believe, oh, trading and messaging. <laughs> I completely forgot. <laughs> Just a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, um, but I, 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 I kind of came to the whole thing, uh, the whole commercial, the idea of doing some more commercial stuff and the idea of um, networking with people in order to raise money, as it were. Um, but I think, you know, with all things, you have to build a relationship before that happens. Yeah. And of course, I sold a lot of houses to individual investors. Um, and just to ease myself in, I went, you know, as, as a mentor, I always say to people, right, go and talk to your friends. Auntie Mabel was a classic one. That was the question. How did I get into training? Um, but uh, I, I, what I did, um, because I'm not very sociable, I don't have... I haven't got many friends. Uh, but what I did was I went back to my investor database, people who bought houses from me, and just said, oh, we're doing this now, we're doing this now, we're doing this now. And like when, when we bought the police station, which is a couple of years ago now, um, uh, the acquisition cost was £504,000, and we didn't put any money in at all. But that's not, that's not quite true. We probably, we probably, we probably spent three or four thousand pounds before we actually got around to buying it but the rest of it it was investor money and they and and that was all from my previous database so i'd already built some kind of relationship with them one of them incidentally i'd never spoken to he'd been on he must have been on my uh it must have been on my list of investors for six seven eight years okay. and i'd never had a conversation with him but I put this thing out about the police station. He rang me and he said, I've got two questions for you. First one is, do you work with this person? No. Good. Uh, second one is, how long is your loan document? I said, what do you mean? He said, how many pages? I said, two. He said, right, fine. Let's have a conversation. <laughs> it's a funny old world, Laura, and no mistake. So when you started mentoring, obviously, I know you mentor for another company. Um, you also have your own training company, um, the Dealmakers Blueprint. Can you tell us a little bit more yeah. about how that come around? Because that's something that you've done yourself. Yeah, okay. So there's uh, there's two things, really, or three things, because you haven't mentioned the fact that I teach skiing. Um, and I'm going to that, Dick, so don't you worry. Because... I've needed to know, I've needed to learn about myself, right? Because of the, the way my career has gone. And I'm not sure, I think, I think it probably came from my mum. And I think I was probably about, yeah, I, I, when I was eight, I decided that I wanted to own a house. And I wanted to own a house, it might have been nine, you know, I don't remember the exact date, but... I wanted to own a house that you could walk around. I didn't even know what they were called. And I wanted to live in the countryside. And I wanted to get married. And when I got married, I wanted to have my bride go to the church in a white Rolls Royce. And I wanted to wear a top hat and tails. Now, bearing in mind, I was eight years old with my arse hanging out of my trousers. We had, like... 
there was no money. So where this stuff came from, I don't really know, but I'm pretty certain it came from my mum. And Rosie's mum used to say a similar thing to her. You know, my mum used to say, you can be whatever you like. And Rosie's mum used to say to her, you can marry who you like, make sure he's a rich man. Well, he's got that one wrong. Because <laughs> we weren't. Um, so, uh, and I w I've always been quite competitive. And and then when I was, that that kind of stayed within me and it didn't really come out. I mean, I wanted to be good at school. I wanted to be good at all the sports. I've, I've always been in, interested in sports. But when I was 14, I fell down a cliff. I don't swim, by the way. Because, you know, by the way, anybody who doesn't already know, if you do swim, make sure it's not in the sea. Because I don't know if you know, but fishies make love in it. Now, uh, <laughs> oh, you can wear a suit. Oh, yeah, but yeah, well, it's, yeah, well, you're, you're not entirely safe, are you? <laughs> it's it, uh, it's, I'm terrified of water. Actually, my kids taught me to, to swim. I'm all right in a pool, but I am, it, it just, anyway, let's not go there. So I think actually what I did was because I was so terrified of water, I put all of my fears in that little box. I've only just thought of this. I've never thought of this before. I admitted that I, I was I was happy to admit that I was terrified of water and, and if I went near the water I would drown. I, I'm comfortable with that. And I, and I think there's a little box that you can put things in. And I think anything that was a real, real, real big challenge I couldn't handle, I just put it in the in the don't go in the sea box. I'd have to think that one through, but I think that's true. So anyway, when I was 14, I fell down a cliff and buggered up my back. Uh, and that was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. Okay. Because uh, I was lucky enough to meet uh, an elderly lady. She was probably about 25 at the time. No, I was 14. What do I know? But she was, uh, she was the former physio at West Ham Football Club. All right. Yeah. Uh, which is near where we were born. And, and she, she taught me to look at things in a different way. Because at the time, treatment for a bad back was stay in bed. She said, whatever you do, don't stay in bed. And I was, uh, and it kind of ruined uh, a, quite a promising gymnastics career. <laughs> it was only promised in my head. I was pretty shit. I was pretty not very good at it. <laughs> but you need to leotard. Sorry? You still have your leotard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I don't know where that stuff really came from, but um, I've, I've, I've always known that, and we've taught the kids, that you, you, it's not true to say that you can be anything. That's not true. You know that Henry Ford, uh, if you think you can, you will. That's not true either. If, if you're like three foot two, you're never going to win the, high, uh, the Olympic gold in the high jump, are you? You might do well in limbo, but but there are but in principle, the more positive you are about what it is you're going to do, the more likely you are to succeed at it. And which is bringing us back to your question, which was about mentoring, in case you've forgotten. Um, so where did that come from? I think I've probably always done it. Yeah. Certainly, when when I started learning to ski. Uh, I chose the ski coach because it, uh, it was 
2000. Uh, it was late anyway. You're supposed to learn to ski when you're eight, you know, which I didn't. But uh, I chose a ski coach who was into uh, a little bit of NLP, accelerated learning programs he was looking at. And he, he taught me some stuff. Uh, well, he, he, he demonstrated some stuff to me, and I'm thinking, well, actually, I do that. Yeah, I've done that. I've tried that. I understand that. And it meant I got to a decent standard very, very quickly. And I've taken that on into my mentoring business. So I know. So pe people come, and we all know that we can do it somewhere. Yeah. So you've got this little voice here saying, no, you can't. And this little voice here saying, yes, you can. And in here, you've got Percy, the remnants of a saber-toothed tiger who resides in the medulla of Longata. And every time something bad happens, he jumps up and says, you're going to die! <laughs> so you stop doing it. Like, you're going to tap on the, on, the, on, a window, on the window of the estate agent's um, door. You know, so you, you know, just go in. Oh, you've got 15 phone calls to make and you don't make one of them because it's the most difficult conversation. Have the difficult conversation. It's okay to be frightened. It's okay to be worried. It's okay to have sleepless nights. It's not okay not to provide a solution when you've got one. And of course, when you get all this stuff going on in your head, you can't think of the solution because you've got all this stuff going on through your head. And and Percy, and it, it, it's, I mean, it's a simplified arrangement, but actually it is the mammalian frame which is left there and is there to save your life. It is a fact. It is true. I call mine person. You can call yours what you like. But that you, you have to overcome that stuff, and it's very, very difficult to overcome it on your own. And when I'm mentoring, one-to-one -one or group is the same. I mean, obviously, the, the process is slightly different. Yeah. But whether it's one-to-one -one, um, or whether it's a group, what, we are, what I am doing or what we are doing as a group is helping you or the, the person that is being mentored at that time to overcome, to solve their problems themselves. So that, well, you know this, we've done enough of it together. Yeah. And, and eventually James did manage to overcome your problem. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, it, what, I, I, and the reason I can do it, the reason I can do that quickly is because I've always really seen solutions and not problems. Yeah. I don't dwell on problems. I get the, I get, I'll get the problem. I might stick it in some little box in the back of my head somewhere, but I'll get the problem. Very often I'll see a problem, especially somebody else's problem, because it's easy for me to think about somebody else's problem, isn't it? So if you tell me your problem, I will probably see the solution straight away. Yeah. Now that because that's how, just how my I, I was going to say how my brain works. I, I don't know whether it's how my brain works or I'm talking my brain to work that way. I'm not sure, really sure how it goes. So that's what I do in my mentoring, and I love it. Yeah. I mean, for instance, we just we just started uh, to to three weeks ago started a lockdown strategy mastermind group. Yeah. Um, and the reason. I did that. I mean, everybody's saying, you know, do it online, do it cheap, and, you know, all that. I don't care about all that. What I care about is the fact that I was talking to Peter Jones a few weeks ago, and we, we were kind of reminiscing a little about um, 2008, Lehman Brothers falling over, 9-11, the millennium bug, 
the mid, early mid nineties price crash, uh, the Black Friday in eighty seven. We were there. We were there, and what we're what's what's happening now? I mean, you know, success leaves clues, right? Well, so does history. And if you live through it, particularly in the profession that we are now, or in a related business, then you know stuff that people who haven't been there or they're doing something completely different or they've been isolated from it, you just know stuff. So I put this this group, in fact, I'm opening another one because it's proven quite uh, quite popular. But um, the, this, the, the idea of this group is we all get together and we talk about their problems and other people's problems. Like in a, this is a group environment. This doesn't really work one-to-one, what we're doing. So the, the group is stronger than its parts. And this week, in, interestingly, it's a bit like our ski group, uh, what's that thing that went mad yesterday? Uh, some, something to do with this. <laughs> I mean, this, this week, uh, uh, from Tuesday, somebody put something on. And between Tuesday and Friday morning, I was just watching it. I wasn't, I wasn't commenting because everybody, they're all sort of saying the right kind of things. And then uh, on yesterday morning, I jumped in and said, hang on, this, this, don't, don't think about this bit. And so mentoring is it's kind of just what I do. And, and what I do on the, what I do in a mentoring session is the same as I do on the slopes. And what I do on the slopes is I, I love teaching beginners. Uh, I love teaching tiddlers because they're brilliant. They're just a lot of fun. But I particularly like, uh, I'm particularly good at teaching uh, actually usually females of a certain age because they go <laughs> skiing. They go skiing because their husbands want to go skiing. But they don't want to... <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, James wants to get down there first. So, oh, actually, what he, wants... <laughs> <laughs> what, what he wants to do most of all is to stand there watching Mark Adams fall over. But, um, but what, generally speaking, what women want to do is get down safe and elegantly. And I'm, I'm with that. I mean, I'm perfectly happy teaching blokes. So, yeah, but the thing is, they don't, they don't listen. So I would I would take women who are skiing. I mean, this is not entirely, you know, I'm not being sexist or anything. It's just that we learn in different ways. Um, so I'll take women who are skiing because their husbands want them to ski, and I will teach them basic uh, principles, basic foundational uh, ideas and movements, which make them technically better skiers than their husband, and therefore they can ski the blacks and and the reds. But I also teach them that they don't have to. Because yeah. I say to them, look, when you, go, when you go for lunch, they will say, well, why don't you come with us? Because you'll be okay. What they mean is, if you come with us, I'll be okay. I feel like uh, I've got deja vu from that conversation, Dixie. <laughs> got deja vu from that conversation. <laughs> yeah. But, but the, the thing is, I mean, you, you can ask Sylvia about this, but um, if, if, you, if you come skiing with, with, with me, I, I'm not going to be the most important person there. You are. 
and it's the same because because I'm responsible for you at that time on that mountain and that's the attitude that I have when I'm mentoring I'm I am responsible to you to help you solve your problem and fundamentally what it comes down to on a mountain you can feel it I mean you can literally feel it they borrow my confidence and gradually it's a bit like bringing kids up gradually they they retain that confidence as they get further and further and further and further and further and further further away from me on the slopes and that's my goal when i'm mentoring no i mean we i mean obviously you've helped me with my scheme you've helped me in my property business so i 100 percent know that's exactly what you do do so if anyone's listening or watching um, and you feel like you need some help, I definitely recommend um, maybe contacting Dixie and see what you can you can do together. You've just touched on, obviously, you have been through a few different, when I call them crashes or changes in the market over the years. Obviously, what we're going through now is, you know, a lot of people don't know what to think, do. Obviously, you've set up your group, but a lot of people who are listening or watching what are the things you think that they should be mindful of to safeguard going forward and what opportunities and problems potentially do you think it's going to come around in the next six to 12, maybe 18 months? Well, I think the first thing they should start doing is not watching the news. Um, If you get a newspaper every day, stop that as well. Uh, I don't, I'm not suggesting that you should be ill-informed. You should because I mean there are two things that are going on in a way. You've got COVID nineteen, which is a, uh, a a pretty deadly form of influenza, and then you've got the results of that because we closed down the economy. Yeah, and you need to separate the two things because. It's true to say on one level that COVID-19 has caused the recession that we're in and we're going to be in. Um, But the thing is that when COVID-19 goes away, when the new normal becomes the new normal, everything is going to be different, but it's also going to be the same. So particularly in the property business, people are always going to want to live somewhere. So the demand for property is not going to go away. Property prices, historically, are driven not not by uh, the the price of the house itself moving, but the the availability of the credit or mortgages, specifically, to... uh, So the the more available mortgages are, the higher rate of uh, house inflation. At the moment, the banks are... They're not lending. They're virtually not lending for two different reasons. Uh, one is that they haven't been able to send values out, although some are moving to automatic desktop valuations, but they're not very accurate. Um, and the other thing is that um, the government announced that everybody should have a three-month holiday on their mortgage. So all of the people that work for the for the various lenders are busy answering telephone calls about that, or the CBILS uh, or the bounce back loans or whatever. <clears throat> so everybody's concentrating on something else. But fundamentally, people need to live somewhere. We're, this this week, 
we we rented two properties. Yeah. Um, and I know lots of people who bought, sold, rented, whatever. Oh, well, yeah. yeah. Exactly. So, but I think what your question was, your part of your question was, what do they need to be mindful about? Yeah. There are the the, the current the current situation um, financially, the, the, in terms of the, of the you know, are we in a recession or or not? The current situation means that people who were very seriously trying to sell back in mid-March because they were in some kind of difficulty will be in more difficulty now. So you should, each of you should, each of everybody listening to this or watching this or everybody in the property business should be out there trying to find solutions to people's problems. And that's how you have to get, it's not about, you know, stealing a cheap house or anything. It's, it's about, because you can't do that because people are only going to accept what they're going to accept. But you have to find people who are even more motivated than they were two months ago. Uh, and therefore, they're in more difficulty and there are less and less people. I mean, most estate agents are closed. I mean, I know that they say they're not, but you try and get them to do some work. Um, but the interesting thing is that if you go to independent estate agents, the owner will be at work. Yeah. He might have furloughed his staff, but he'll be at work. So there are opportunities. And I'm not suggesting you should take advantage of people, but you, there are dozens, hundreds, thousands of people out there who are in desperate straits and need our help. So we should be actively seeking them out so that we can help them. Now, my, my personal opinion in terms of the type of house, um, because of social distancing, I'm not sure what that's going to do to HMOs. Yeah. Um, as, as far as SA, I mean, remember the time we go through them all, but, but as far as service accommodation is concerned, I think uh, this, this summer holiday, so July and August, it's going to be really busy. On the other hand, there are going to be guest houses and um, small hotels that won't have survived. So they'll be coming onto the market. And don't think that you paying not very much money for somebody's um, hotel that has already gone gone bust you know you you don't need to pay last year's retail money for it you the market is the market so you have to so it's not business as normal because it's never business as normal business is never normal look at what's happened over the last 18 months with back in march last year we were supposed to be exiting Brexit, right everybody was that took two and a half years everybody was really happy about that so all oh, right we we're exiting Brexit, and then suddenly we didn't so the, the property market was on its backside from March. Uh, everybody's saying, oh, well, we'll just wait and see. We'll 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 wait and see. We'll... Do you think Warren Buffett is waiting and seeing? <laughs> what Warren Buffett is, is watching what everybody else is doing. What everybody else is doing, he's waiting and seeing. So he's buying up everything he can get hold of. So... So we had uh, we had Brexit, and then suddenly we had a, um, an election, and the whole thing turned back on its head. It was like um, it was it was ridiculous. I mean, every everybody 
yeah, yeah, it's fine. Six weeks later, we got shut. Oh, ten weeks later, we got shut. We got a lockdown. So nothing is ever the same. Mortgage rates go up and down. Interest rates go up and down. Availability of mortgages come and go. At the moment, there aren't many mortgages even available on the market. But that's because the banks are busy doing something else. But once we, let's say that come the summer, let's say the 1st of July, yeah. we're, we're back to whatever the new normal is going to be. They're going to be awash with cash. Yeah. Because there are people, sovereign wealth um, funds, etc., who are piling money into the UK. And not because of the interest rate, but because of the fact that they can get um, longer loans and it's safer than the stock market. In regards to so, value on property, in regards to value, so obviously people who are looking to buy properties now, obviously do you, what would your advice be on end values? Obviously things are going to change. Would you still be using your comparables or would you be taking 10, 15% off that? What, what would you be doing? What have you done before? Well, I don't know if you've heard of the Hamlet Packet Challenge. I think I have, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're, when you're buying property, you should pay what it's worth to you and, and pretty much ignore the asking price. Some people will take what it's worth to you and some simply won't. Now, you don't need to fall out over that. You know, you have to come up with your number. And your number, it's quite rightly, is based on comparables. But here's the thing. Most people don't know how to, don't really know what the property the comparables are you know so you're based in sheffield right yeah so uh how many sort of boroughs has sheffield got how many areas is it split up into six or eight let's say let's say there were you got sheffield yeah the city and and then you put a cross in the middle and all the cheap houses over here and all the really expensive houses are over here and then the ones in the middle over there, right? So if you come into this quadrant, yeah. the house in that corner is a bit closer to the house in this corner. So probably the value here in this quadrant, uh, as it gets further away, values probably drop. So you don't want to be buying, uh, taking a house in this part of the quadrant and comparing it to price sold prices in this part of the quadrant. You need to know your area intimately. Yeah, and. And to be fair, there's always going to be a little bit of guesswork. Yeah. But you need to be looking. It's not so much of what you're going to... It's, it's what, you, what you pay for it is very, very important. But it's not the only thing. Yeah. It's what, how much value you can add to it. And the real key to it is finding something that maybe somebody else hasn't noticed or taking it from a single let to a minimo or from a minimo to... Uh, an HMO, or in certain areas of the country, I, I don't happen to believe, like some, dare I say, trainers um, put out, that SA doesn't work everywhere. Just like single lets don't work everywhere. Just like HMOs don't work everywhere. So you need to know your, your patch intimately well. Yeah. And if you do that and use the correct comparables, recent comparables, I don't want to be three miles away and two years before, because that's, that's, that's no information at all. You just have to be accurate. And incidentally, don't believe the estate agents. 
Because <laughs> you know, you do realize that they're the only people you're allowed to lie to. <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> Let me give you an example of why you don't take too much notice of estate agents. When we bought the police station in Yeldon, um, uh, I, I, I spoke to the agent anyway, there's was, was quite a story beforehand, and he rang me when, when I was skiing, funny enough, and he said, so I looked at it, and I said, I think it's a bit expensive for us, and he said, all right, well, we've got somebody else on it, I'll let you know what happens, and then he rang me the following day, or two days later, and he said, actually, they've come in at full asking price, and they're definitely going to go ahead, so don't spend any money on it. I said, okay, when, when that deal falls over, give me a call. And I left them with that thought. So he rang me, um, six weeks later and I answered the phone and said can't you see I'm on a ski lift <laughs> <laughs> anyway I, it happened that I was travelling back the following day so uh, that was the Sunday or something uh, so on the Monday I went and had a look and I said okay well look let me ask you a question Wh whose valuation is this and the, the answer to that question is always it's either mine or it's the client's and it's best if they say it's the client. But he said, oh, it's my valuation. I said, all oh, right, okay. So how did you go about valuing it? And he said, well, comparables. I said, okay, right. I said, how many police stations are there in High Street, Great Yeldon? And he said, well, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm looking at the comparables of what we're going to build. I said, oh, okay, right. So do you want to give me those numbers? And he said, well, I don't have them with me at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> So I said we'd go and run the numbers and I would uh, get back to him the following day, which I did. Uh, and what I did was I sent him an email and, the, and, and I said, I'll, I'll need to run it through the, the, the Hamlet Packet um, Deal Analyzer industry standard software, <laughs> as Linda Rourke uh, christened it. It's one of my mentees. And um, I said, I'm, and I'll email you tomorrow. So I emailed him the following day and said, look, Tim, before I go any further, I need to let you know that this is not an offer. We've run the numbers. This doesn't work, so you'll need to find me something else that fits the Hamlet Challenge. So let me just go through what I've done with the Hamlet Challenge here so that you understand what, I, what, we're, what we're looking for. And that's what I did. And the Hamlet Challenge brought it down to 466. Actually, it didn't. And I've, I've, been, I've been kicking myself every day since because it should have been 446, and I actually typed 466. Yeah. So, and I said, um, and I finished up with saying, don't forget, this is not an offer, so you better go and find me something else. 12 minutes later, I got an email from him saying, I've put your offer forward. It was on at 575, I offered 466, which should have been 446. And by the close of business, we'd agree to do it. So, and, and this is a regular estate agent, not a commercial. Commercials are, are the, 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 the different character, they have different characteristics. They haven't all got skinny suits, skinny, shiny suits, and they're 22 years old and drive a bot hatch, you know. They tend to wear tweed a bit more, but it's, it's the same thing. Nick, I can see you've got a board behind us for people watching. I've had a few messages. Could you... Give an example of how to work out the Hamlet challenge. No. <laughs> but, but, 
Yeah, I can. Yeah, shall we? Yeah, please. Have we got time? Yeah, yeah. Cool. All right. Because I've got one. Here's one I prepared earlier. <laughs> So to actually write it out on the board takes a little while. The idea of the Hamlet challenge is to, this is, this is level one assessment. So this is the, this is the when you're going through right, right move, you need to be able to look at a house and say, right, that's X amount of pounds, the GDV. Now, uh, this, uh, I'm pretty certain you'll find this on my Facebook page, Dixie Walker at somewhere. But anyway. Oh! <laughs> is that your alarm? <laughs> I, I wonder who that is ringing me now. <laughs> All right, so the Hamlet Challenge does a couple of things. No, let me do it first. Right, so we start off with the GDB. Nobody ever talks about GDB on, on residential houses, like single lets. They only ever do it on, on uh, commercial stuff. Yeah. But the GDB, the gross development value, is the most important number. How much is it going to be worth when you finish doing what you intend to do with it? Okay? So in this case, the GDB is £110,000. Now, the Hamlet Challenge is designed to give you a deal that fits the BRR model. That is to say that you uh, you recycle all or nearly all of your money, right? So we all understand that that's one of the fundamental things about property, and you you want you want to be doing that unless you've got I don't know endless sums of money, which you can't have because the more money you have, the more houses you buy, you are going to run out. So that's why we do the use the BRR principle. So. With the BRR principle, the most important thing is how much it's going to be worth at the end. That's like, in this case, £110,000. I deliberately chose 110 as a, instead of 120 because it makes the mathematics more, more complicated. What can you borrow? So you're going to buy, you're going to add value, and then you're going to refinance. What can you borrow on a buy-to-let mortgage, assuming you can get one? Normally... I always, I always say 75%. I know people who do this successfully with 80 and 85% loan to value, but two things, they're more difficult to get hold of and they're more expensive, particularly if you go through a limited company. When you've got 30 or 40 properties, you can start doing that if you want to. Actually, when you've got 30 or 40 properties, you'll probably want to lower your gearing, not increase it. So, but almost anybody can get 75%, every lender, will offer a 75% product, which is a, a decent rate. And incidentally, I would normally recommend a five-year fixed term. Um, so 75% of 110,000, Laura, is how much? I know your mental arithmetic's really good. 82,500. <laughs> <laughs> 82,500. So going back to 21 Lumley Drive, the house was 25 grand. I gave Tony 1,500 quid for finding it, 1,500 quid for doing it. That means 28. Uh, yeah, that's 28. Plus some fees of uh, maybe a thousand pounds. So that's 29,000. So I've spent 29,000 quid, right? And then it was refinanced at 39. So in this case, to get all my money back, I need to not spend any more than 82,500. 
because I can only raise 82,500 on it. Yeah. So that's all the money we've got to play with. Now the, the build costs, again, nobody, nobody talks about, nobody calls refurbs build costs, but actually that's what it is, it's the same. So you can do this on a single uh, buy to that, you can do it on a hotel or casino, it's the same. So the build costs, which in this case is a refurb, yeah. So kitchen, bathroom, repaint, carpet, that sort of thing. Um, and, so, and bearing in mind, if you put a team of individuals in there, I know James runs, uh, runs your guys, but if you put different trades in there, you have, to, you have to do all of the safety stuff as well. So there's extra costs involved in that. So the bill cost here, for the sake of argument, is 10 grand. So if you take 10 grand off of 82 and a half, what do you get then, Laura? I don't know, Dixie, I can't see you bought. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. So that leaves you with 72 and a half. So in other words, you've got 80, 82 and a half thousand pounds to spend. That's all you've got to spend because that's all you can raise on it. The, the bill cost is 10 grand. So that leaves you only 72,500 quid. So your maximum purchase price is 72,500 quid. How much is the property on the market for? 100. No, it isn't. What's it on them for? Who knows? I don't care. I don't care what it's on the market at. What I want to know is how much is it going to be worth when I finish with it? So you see, the Hamlet Packet Challenge does several things. The first thing it does is make you ignore the asking price. Because what most people do is they look on they look on right move at properties that they could afford to buy. Yeah. This takes it the other way around. So, start off with your GDV, take 75% of that, and that's the magic number. Now, what I haven't done in this particular example, or well, to there anyway, we haven't taken into account legals, we haven't taken into account SDLT, etc. But in an ideal world, you do that as well. So, that's the Hamlet Packet Challenge. Thank you very much. <laughs> the Hamlet packet challenge. <laughs> Industry standard software. <laughs> um, Dixie, uh, before we go, would you mind just sharing a little bit about what you're going to, what, what's next for you? Um, I know you've got a few irons in the fire. Uh, yeah, we've got um, um, three. Um, so basically, new build new build houses and what uh and they a little bit local to us i mean most of the stuff that we've most of the buy to that and so on that we've had in the past have been up in the northeast um and so where where, where i sold them started in the northeast northeast and gradually came down the map toward to about lincoln so most of our stuff was there so we're going to be expanding we we have some student properties uh which are a bit of a problem at the moment but uh, come come January it'll all start again so we have some student properties we're looking for some more we uh, we take those on a rent to rent basis where we are just because they, they kind of don't work uh, on a purchase basis just where they don't work for us they don't fit this that's for sure um, but we've got uh, we've got uh, two lots we've got an eight and a nine in for planning one of which is about to be um, uh, granted we've got and we've got three others that we've got offers in. Um, in fact, there's one not too far from us. We're number two in the queue. So when the first guy falls over, we're going to be doing that. 
Um, and that's what we do. Last thing before we go, can you tell people about Dixie's Destiny Board? <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> people like this stuff. All right. Um, that is on my Facebook page, isn't it? I don't know what this is. Facebook page. This is my podcast. <laughs> I know. Right. So I've got to get rid of this one. <laughs> All right. So. Is it James that mentioned? Is it James that called it Dixie's Dex Destiny Board? Or it already called this before we knew about it? No, it was you. Oh. Well, you too. Uh, one second. Okay. <laughs> right then, Dixie's Destiny book. I'll have to do the quick version. Yeah, go for it. Right, so this is a tub of this is a tub. I, I got this from my, my, my grand used to have um, pots on the on the mantel shelf where um, where she'd put so much money every week for the gas, the electricity, the tally man and whatever, whatever, whatever. So <clears throat> and this idea comes from this. And uh, um we, uh, we probably haven't got uh, time for me to tell you where the idea came from. But um, so the basic principle of the Dixie's Destiny Board, which is what it became known as, uh, was that you, you, you got to have a plan. You got to have a plan which uh, about where you want to be in 6, 12, 18 months time. Some people like a five year plan or a 15 year plan or whatever, but you have to have intermediary goals so if you've got an annual plan then you need to know where you're going to be in three months six months nine months 12 months bearing in mind these things should accelerate as you go through and then when you start with three months then you, you break that down into weeks and you break that down into days so you need to know what it is that you're going to do on a daily basis to get to where your 12 month target is so you have to think in terms of being uh, an olympic athlete an olympic athlete will start their training program uh the day the olympics finish so they got a four-year program unless you're uh, bonkers so that that's that's the general idea you have to have a plan now in order to have the plan you need several things first of all you need a target so the target has to be achievable measurable and has to have a date stamp on it now the easiest way to to uh, the easiest way to measure it is to put a number on it, and the number is a sum of money. The sum of money doesn't help you to get there, it's just where you, your benchmark you're going to start from. Okay, so now you've got on this side, you've got your job, and money comes in to your pot of money on a regular basis and down here 
you've got things that you cannot avoid paying, like your mortgage or rent, um, food bills, transport. Right? So you've got to pay those. There are other things which you can choose to pay or not. You don't have to go out and eat, do you? You can stay at home and have a family meal. But you can choose eating out. You can choose a holiday, etc. So this is essential spending. This is discretionary spending. Over here, under wants. is the fun zone. So you make a list of things that you want to do. Like you wanna, you wanna go skiing with me twice a year. And that's gonna, skiing's like a, a grand, isn't it? Or if you go to the Moe bar, it's too <laughs> Depends if you go with Stephen Pardew or not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so you want you uh, you want to let's say you want to go skiing. You want to you want a Ferrari. Why anybody would want a Ferrari? I have no idea. But so you can put a number on the skiing holiday. You can put a number on the Ferrari. You can put a number on the the other holiday. You can put a number on private schooling for your kids. You can put a whatever it is you want. You can put a number. The number doesn't get you the thing. The thing gives you the number, but the number gives you something to work with. Because what you do is you value all of those things. Oh, by the way, remind me to read that to you before we, uh, before we go. Um, so you get the number. So skiing is going to be two grand. Uh, holiday is going to be two grand. New car is going to be two grand. So that's your annual. So let's say the annual is 30,000 quid, for example. Let's call it 36,000 quid because I'm going to ask you to do the arithmetic in a minute. So how much a month is that going to be? I'm a calculate kid. <laughs> I grew up in the calculator era. <laughs> I can't believe it. £3,000 a month. Exactly. So, see this money that comes in and goes out there? How much is left at the end of the month? In your... How many? Let's say 1500 Left? 500 No. How much? You haven't put a price against some other things in that list. It doesn't, it doesn't matter because the stuff that you, the, the average person spends what comes in every month. And you, people, probably 95% of the population spend, I'm, I, I know very, very well-paid people who have nothing left at the end of the month. Yeah. So essentially, the job income, most people want to give up their job, right? Most people do. Mm -hmm. And because they want the freedom, they want the time, the freedom, and so on. And that's actually what we teach at the Deal Makers Blueprint, which we'll come back to. So your job money goes in this pot, but it goes in that side. And then, oh no, wrong one. And then, it leaks out through here and 
at the end of the month, you've got that much. So what we do is we start another business of some description. And we put a barrier halfway in that pot so that this money can't leak into there and that money can't leak into there. So that other gives you your money, which basically just grows over time. In order to achieve, in order to do everything that you want in the fun zone, you're saying we want 3,000 quid a month. Yeah. How are we going to get 3,000 quid a month? How much does the average single debt get you, net? A month. 350. Yeah. 350. Right. So you can either have 350 times nine. Uh, what about uh, a, mo um, a mini mo? 900. Five, how many? The, well, 900. I don't know. I got them in. Well, ours is 1,100. No, that's HMOs, isn't it? Ours is only a four bed. Okay. Well, let, let's call that. Um, did you say 900, first of all? Yeah. So, if you had, let's call that, we're going to make that 3,600 because it's going to make the um, arithmetic easier. So, you'd only need four of those, wouldn't you? What about SA? Oh, God, don't ask me about that. Yeah, exactly. No, it's not my 14 life. <laughs> One second. One second. So in order to get this money from your other business, whilst you're still in your job, most people say that if I get to the average wage is like 25,000 a year, but most people say that if I get to 3,000 or 4,000 pounds a month, which that means I can give up my job. I think that's the wrong way of thinking about it. I think that what you have to do is think, I want to get rid of my job and I'm going to give myself two years to do that. So you start by saying, right, I want to be able to do all this stuff. Yeah. Plus replace my income. But your first target is to be able to do this stuff as well as your job. And to do that, once you've got your 3,600 quid that you need there, you either need nine buy to let or four HMOs or whatever it is you want to do. Yeah. And that brings us back to the BRR model. Because if you don't add value and refinance and get all or most of your money back, it's going to take you a long time, right? Yeah. So that's the, um, uh, the instant, not very clear, <laughs> thrown together. <laughs> but I think there is one on my Facebook page somewhere. Oh, what do you want to read off the board before we go? This bit in here. So, something I, I, I came across the other day. I've got things stuck all over the office wall. With, you know. um, it says, we don't need to focus on the things that are changing. We need to focus on the things that are staying the same. Okay. People will always want, people are not going to move to tents. People want to live in houses. People want to live in better houses. People want to do better for themselves. There are some people in society who can't do that. So we have to look after them. So we can, one of the things that we're doing with the new builds 
<coughs> where I live, it's quite easy to spend a million quid. Well, no, no, that's, that's not quite right, is it? I was going to say it's, it's quite easy to spend a million quid on a house. It's quite easy for a house to be worth a million quid. And most people can't afford houses worth a million quid. And some of the th some of the deals that we're looking at, they've got permission for five, four, four or five bedroom houses that are a million quid. So what we're going to do, what we're looking to do, is take that planning permission and change it into eight or nine, two and three beds. All right, okay. Not affordable housing, but housing that people can afford. Because in any market, they're going to be easier to sell. You, the cost per square foot, the, sorry, the, the value, what the price per square foot is higher because the bigger the house, the more you get for your money. If you buy a house that's twice as big, it's not twice the price, is it? So that's, that's, that's what our strategy is going to be, is to, is to build smaller houses, not big enough, not tiny little, you know, rat runs. I mean, the apartments that we, that we did at, um, uh, that we did at the police station are 54 square metres. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, you can make two apartments out of some of them. So <clears throat> I, I think I, I probably wrote this up after we spoke during the week and, and booked this call um, because it kind of resonated with me. But I think if, if, if anybody who's listening to this, and I suppose there is somebody <laughs> listening to this, <laughs> I don't know, I'm getting a barrage of messages on our ski groups. I'm assuming they're listed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've not been distracted by that. Um, so I think if anybody who's listening to this, if they take the one thing away with them, well, a couple of things, really. The first thing is you don't have to be alone. I want to be alone. You don't, you don't have to be alone. There are people out there. That will, that will help you. Be careful who you choose, but there are people out there. Everybody who's in this business, or for that matter, every other business, has, has been, you know, not, nothing. It's, it's not good all the time. What you have to do is you have to learn to get over the bad bits. And it can be tough. Yeah. But, Together we're stronger. So we don't need to focus on the things that are changing. We need to focus on what stays the same. Well, Dixie, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time this morning. People listening on the podcast, I'll put all Dixie's details below in the show notes. So thank you very much, Dixie. You're welcome. And for the ski group, bye. <laughs>